Hello and welcome to the Clever Tech's podcast, Creating Useful People. I'm Jodie Cook and today I'm joined by Benjamin Banks, CEO and founder of SBD Group. Started in 2013 under the name SBD Apparel, the company develops superior strength clothing and equipment with world-class athletes, coaches and health professionals. The products are made in the UK, predominantly in SBD's factory in Rotherham. The group employs over 50 people, the products are distributed in over 40 countries and SBD received the Queen's Award for Enterprise in 2018. SBD is also the official partner for the World's Strongest Man and the International Powerlifting Federation. Ben himself had a successful powerlifting career, first competing for Great Britain as a junior in 2007, winning multiple British championships, then going on to represent GB in the Open team at the World Championships and the European Championships, retiring from competing in 2013, which might be a coincidence, but that's the same year he started SBD. Ben, a huge welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. So first question is, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, <laughs> I know the answer to this one straight away because it was a little bit of a joke in my family. When I was growing up, I saw my dad working very hard. He was a tool maker by trade. So that's someone that does precision metal work, particularly making tools or the dies for casting. I wouldn't have said that there was always a lot of money around. And I think I remember asking my dad... What, what job I could do to make the most money. And, and he said, well, I guess the prime minister. So uh, <laughs> that that's what I used to tell my family I was going to be when I was, well, very small. <laughs> yeah, I, I quickly learned that that probably wasn't the, the most well-paid job. <laughs> so you're not still keen on being the prime minister? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't envy uh, Theresa May at the moment. No. No. So you wanted a career that made the most money. Do you remember what age you were when when that was your that was kind of your hope? I was very young at that point. I mean, we're talking a toddler, <laughs> toddler to, to primary school. So. <laughs> and yeah. then when did you decide that the prime minister career wasn't the one for you? <laughs> I think even going into my teens and early twenties, I was still quite motivated by by money and studying maths at university. I it was quite natural going to Oxford to end up in, into banking. It's obviously quite notorious <laughs> for being quite well paid and doesn't always get the best coverage in the media either, but it served me quite well for a period of time. So you've mentioned that your dad is a toolmaker. What did your mum do when you were growing up? Before she had me, she was a draftswoman, but then she stepped back from work to, to focus on bringing up myself and my sister. And then before actually setting up a business with my, my father to manufacture display cases for for collectibles so that was my sort of first first hand experience of setting up a business and seeing them work and what they put into it and did you know what they were doing at the time they started just before i went to secondary school so i mean i was old enough to understand what they were doing and they did it for quite a considerable amount of time i think just just short 10 years before my my dad decided to go back to just his original career in tool making and, and my mum subsequently went on to work for a, a, a local clothing distribution company. So when you were younger and when you were seeing your parents working, what was your impression of what work involved? When they had their own business, they did work very hard at it. They certainly took a very different approach to how I've taken it. They, they were very meticulous, probably too much so on the products that they're making. So my dad had a a shed in our back garden where he'd make the display cases which were made from wood and glass and he would at times spend very long hours working on them and uh, 
they'd be very particular to make sure that the quality was there but it was never really something they set up to be scalable so it was always going to be something that they had to put a lot of time and effort into they would never really be able to have hired anyone to I think to have met the same standards that they wanted I think ultimately that's why they decided to go back to just having a well essentially a regular job where they could you know have the the weekends and the the evenings back to themselves that's so interesting because especially when you compare it to SBD and where it is now and 50 employees making and distributing products for over 40 countries it's a very similar thing to be doing to be manufacturing things but it's so different in terms of scale where did you first pick up the idea of starting a company that could scale to that size I did always have quite big plans for the company, but I think in terms of setting up my own company, it was something that I always felt that I'd like to do and I'd want to do. And some people that I've worked with in the past had suggested that, particularly after 2008 when things weren't quite the same in, in finance anymore. And coming from powerlifting myself and, and my involvement as a coach through, through a club I had in London, I began to see some opportunities and began to realize that the, there was a lot more potential to producing these products for strength and fitness sports and to, to reach out into the wider mass market because currently a lot of the companies that were involved in the sport at that time were were very niche and they focused on the competitive athletes themselves and hadn't really then leveraged that to, to reach out into the wider gym-going market. So you could see that there was a, a lot of potential there. I mean, what I didn't anticipate, I think, is the explosion of strength and fitness sports, particularly in ladies in, in the last five to six years, which timed quite well with the launch of SBD. <laughs> Very well, yeah. You mentioned that you, you kind of always wanted to set up your own business. Do you remember when that seed was planted? In, in finance, particularly in investment banking, you're split up into a lot of small teams. So although you're working for a big bank, each team always operates like its own business. You have your own profit and loss. And you do sort of approach it and run it as though it is it is a small business, albeit within a larger bank. And there is real ownership of it, and you see what you're producing each day. And that's somewhere where you start to feel like you're actually being part of a business, but ultimately you are working for someone else and you can't always make the decisions and do the do the things that you would like to do and that's one of the sort of the first first times where I felt felt like I was actually almost part of a business and running it I think just in terms of my own approach to work and and the way I organize myself and the way I think I felt that that would lend itself quite well to actually running a business what were you like at school I was really was quite nerdy I was the one that sat at the front of the class and always did all my homework and I did study very hard. I went to just a local primary school and then from there went to a nearby grammar school, which was which was a great experience for me. Because I think you, you do have obviously very good teachers at those schools, but also I think it's the fact that you, you can you can work hard and be smart without it destroying your street cred in, in the school, which it, which it might do in some others. Did you stand out as the nerdy one or were there a lot of nerdy kids? There were quite a few, but yeah, I think particularly on the, the, the mathematics side, I did stand out. I always handled numbers quite well and um, I was a lot more comfortable with numbers than I was in terms of English and written language. That was something I struggled with quite hard. Coming from Essex doesn't help that. 
So, yeah, you have to forgive me if I don't pronounce TH properly sometimes. But <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> no, it's background. cool. I just think it's more efficient not to sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, was Oxford always like on your agenda when you were growing up? No, I wouldn't say it was. I mean, I think I probably did see Oxford as being the best university, just I think from, from the way that my grandparents would have talked about it and things like that. I wouldn't say that I necessarily set out to do it. It just all kind of fell into place. And then actually I got onto a scheme at Oxford where they, well, I guess essentially it was for the children that, that wouldn't normally go to university because neither of my parents went to university. And there I met some of the tutors and they sort of taught you how to handle the interview process. And then from there I actually went and applied and, and, and got the place at Keeble College. You know, it was a fantastic time and, it's certainly served me very well. Going down, I guess, what is quite an academic route, doing well at school and then sixth form and then going to Oxford to do maths, it's not the traditional journey to then going on and starting a global sports brand, I think. <laughs> it seems yeah. quite a non-traditional, a, a kind of traditional way of getting to do something very non-traditional. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. I mean, but I guess none of it was really planned. So, uh, I mean, it, it definitely helped me, I think, the way... The math side, it does make you very analytical and it teaches you to think everything through and to evaluate risk. Those aspects have certainly served me very well, both when I went into banking and and now in terms of the business, because you know, every decision you, you take has risk. It's just deciding if you want to take that risk and how big a risk it is. Let's talk about the risk. Well, I don't know if you considered it a risk, but from when you went from a full-time role in hedge funds to setting up SBD in 2013, can you talk me through the thought process of that career change? Well, at the time, I'd made a number of job switches and I'd just come to the end of a role. I'd worked at a hedge fund where they were setting up algorithmic trading and it hadn't really been entirely compatible for me. And uh, I was considering going back into banking, and I met some banks. And it's actually the CEO of an asset management company that, that I'd worked with, uh, that I got on very well with. And he'd actually he talked about setting up my own business, and that he thought it would be a good move for me. I mean, he actually suggested some different ideas. He wanted to set up a chain chains of gyms in the, the Middle East, which I think was actually not a bad idea. Looking at the way, particularly the strength of fitness market's gone in the the Arab Emirates now but it wasn't really for me to be going out traveling to Middle East a lot and spending a lot of time living there but then um, I started to look on the site I was focusing more on my powerlifting at that point and with the club one of the issues I'd had was where I used to coach and, and, and train people I used to get bad tendonitis on my knees and that's how I started to order a lot of knee supports and I didn't really find them sufficient for what I wanted them for. And then in addition to that, I'd started to, with through the club, there was a difficulty to access the equipment you needed to do powerlifting, the specialist products. And I tried to actually retail that one of the existing companies and I found it quite a, it was quite a difficult process to try and do that. So that's when I started to realize there was possibly an opportunity there for a company that approached it in a, on a bigger scale. Did it actually feel like a risk or was it just a series of calculations which actually made sense? I think it was definitely a risk. and I mean, I was fortunate that I was able to fund it myself. So in that sense, I was able to make my own decisions and uh, I wasn't 
didn't have to justify them to anyone else. But uh, it was still my money, and if uh, <laughs> if it hadn't have gone well, then uh, yeah, I would have lost that. But I, I did think I'd I, I'd be able to recoup the money I, I, if it wasn't as successful as what I'd hoped. And I can remember some people expressing some doubts about how successful it could be. <laughs> always, <laughs> there's yeah. always people expressing doubts about how successful. Mm. I mean, w- one of them people we both know. Uh, I mean, who works for me now is Aaron Singh, who was uh, who was the head coach of British Powerlifting at the time. And when I told him about the product, and I told him about what I wanted to do, and how many I wanted to sell, and he spent time with me on the product, and he liked the product, but he just didn't see the same potential and the same market size that I did. But now, uh, six years later, he sits next to me in the <laughs> office and uh, he oversees our sponsored athletes and uh, our product design. Has he admitted that you were right? <laughs> He'd never do that. But I, think, <laughs> I think he certainly sees it's, yeah, it's a lot bigger than what he thought it could be. <laughs> I think dealing with and working out how you respond to naysayers, let's call them, is probably just yeah. a really nice skill or attitude to learn that would stand you in quite good stead like do you do you remember any like instances of that growing up where you saw the potential in something and someone else was like oh no that will never work I wouldn't say I remember specific instances but I think when I've always sort of listened to what people say I mean more so if you trust the person or if you have if you hold them in high regard but you know to take on board what they say understand why they say it I mean I always try and get people to explain why i think that's another thing coming from strength and fitness that you get a lot of coaches trainers that will tell you things that they've read without necessarily fully understanding it i think always asking people to explain why they're telling you to to do something so you fully understand the reasons i think the same is true with any advice just understanding why they think that and if you agree with those reasons do you remember growing up anyone whose advice you did make sure to always take on board or or any kind of role models that stand out to you i mean i always listened to lots of my dad i mean my dad he has a very different path to me but he not necessarily academically because he didn't stay in school too long but in terms of he was i always considered him to be very wise because he always had a lot of common sense and you know for the most part his, his opinion would be very worthwhile to listen to but i mean again i mean he's the business and the way I approach that, I mean, it's very different to the way he approached it. So there are a lot of things that he wouldn't have done or that he wouldn't have advised me to do. But there's still, I think, approaches to things and philosophies that he, he would he have that would apply. When I was researching before this, one of the things that I read, which I love, is that you in work are most likely to say let's just check to make sure and least likely to say that'll do or oh it'll be fine (laughs) so where did that side of your personality like the the really meticulous side where did where did that come from it probably goes back to my my mother and father when I saw them running their business I mean I I think they were probably a little too much when they were producing something that they'd want there to be no imperfection whatsoever you know I can remember them, them sort of holding up things to make the, so it's wooden and glass cases and they'd be holding them under the light trying to find if there were any marks on the glass and if they found a mark then they'd scrap it <laughs> and uh, I think they were probably a little a little too much but I think it, it is important to be proud of what you produce and and I think that's that's something that's been very core to, to SPD so I mean we have 
separate team where every product that we make is, is checked. So every single item that leaves is goes through a process of being checked for a series of almost 10 to 12 checks to make sure that we can't identify anything that's deviating from the quality we want. I think it's one of the things that's really differentiated us because, I mean, our competition is essentially all of the, the companies that import products from Asia. And by us manufacturing in the UK, I mean, it's obviously aside from the patriotism, it's nice to make in your country. It's having everything local to you. It gives you that control over everything. You can We can pick every material, every construction method, every every aspect of the design, all the products are then made continuously. So every day we can see the product coming off the production line and we can we can check it. And you just can't do that if you're importing six months' worth from Asia. If something comes from Asia and you've got a whole container full that, uh, and there's an issue, you've got a very big problem because you're going to then have to wait many months to get the next lot. So I don't envy those companies when they, they get in that situation and their product arrive and there's an issue with it. They either have to not supply people for many months or, or and, and write off a large volume of goods or or they have to try and push it through. And I think most companies will, for obvious reasons, then try and push it through because they that's what they they feel they have to do, which is um, quite rare for, for manufacturing, but but particularly for this sector. Do you remember thinking at the time when your parents were checking things for tiny, tiny blemishes, do you remember thinking this is a bit much <laughs> or were you bought into it at the time? No, I, I think I did say that to them. I think they probably knew it, but but I mean, coming from the other side now, it is very difficult to know where to draw the line because if you're dealing with manufacturing, you know, you will, what, what is acceptable to you, what's acceptable to the customer because you want everything to be perfect, but in reality, there's always small deviations, and you know you have to decide what what is acceptable. How do you make sure that you pass that that way of thinking and way of operating onto the rest of your team? It is challenging, and I think it is something that I particularly struggled with passing on responsibility. And I think it's the one thing that I, I have sort of held on to things for too long, and. I think some people would say I still am because there's still aspects that I need to hand over to certain people that I haven't yet. But it's just finding the people you can trust. People like like Aaron, so now I fully trust him to to handle all the relationship with the, the sponsored athletes. And then the first person I hired, Nazar, so he runs the, the day-to-day business, so he oversees all of the dispatch and the warehouse and the quality control. And he's uh, very, very similar to me. He's got good ownership of the business and he's uh, very, very attentive and, and very committed to producing the quality. So it's, it's just gradually finding those right people that you feel comfortable with and that you, you feel you can trust to do things at the standard you want. Do you have any other mantras or philosophies that you channel in your day to day now? I wouldn't necessarily say mantras, but I think it's always just trying to... Uh, I mean, one, one thing I, I can remember before I set up the business is watching things like The Apprentice on TV. And, and for me, that that's not real. It doesn't show what business is about. You see them trying to barter people down to save anything that they can. For me, it's not about that. It's about building relationships with everyone. 
you know, with the customer, with the athletes that you sponsor, with your with your suppliers, with your staff. And if you build a good relationship that's long term, it's it's not necessarily about saving a few pounds here and there. You know, because everyone can try and squeeze other squeeze a few pounds out of someone else, but it needs to be successful for everyone. If a company finds that the business is in good value, you know, it's, it's one of your suppliers, you've pushed them so hard to get the best price, then that relationship isn't going to be strong long term. I think that's one of the flaws when you look at a lot of the time, how business is presented on television. It's it's very cutthroat. And you do see some people behave like that and it's it, it makes it very difficult to establish a relationship with them. Have you developed that way of thinking since starting SBD or is it something that you picked up ahead of that? I think probably a, a bit of both. I mean, I think one thing I've tried to do a lot with SPD is whenever we're dealing with something, particularly, you know, whether it's with discussing sponsorship with an athlete, we try and sit down and look at what, what we think the fair fair price is, the fair value is that someone's going to bring to the company and, and how that's going to impact our business. And we try and offer that. We try not to look at what other people do. And the same same goes for with other aspects of the business. So we try we try not to enter things like a negotiation. We try and look at what our what we can offer someone is, and then we offer that. You know, if that's not enough, it's it's not enough. But in most cases, it's it's particularly when it comes to sponsorship because of the size we are in in our sports, it's normally quite significant for many of the athletes that are involved. But we don't look at it and think, oh, we could just get away with with offering them this. You know, we try and offer offer them the best deal that we can that's going to be commercial for us as well. I want to talk more about powerlifting and powerlifting's yeah. role in your life. But first, I think I might define powerlifting just for people who yeah. aren't quite sure exactly what it is. So powerlifting, for anyone who isn't sure, is squat, bench and deadlift, which is SBD, which is actually what SBD Apparel is and SBD Group is named after. Powerlifting is not not yet an Olympic sport and is different to weightlifting, which is an Olympic sport. And weightlifting consists of the clean and jerk and the snatch. And weightlifting is more overhead that's probably the main the main difference between them so ben's sporting career has been in powerlifting i don't think you're a secret weightlifter no, no. <laughs> so can you do you want to tell me about the kind of role of of sport in your life growing up it wasn't really much at all i mean i used to i, I played a little bit of football when i was very young and but then i wasn't really that active in in sport i was i was a very very thin kid really i was I, I did the regular PE and game sessions at school, but but nothing more really. And then at the age of fourteen, I went to started to go to the gym. I was conscious that I was quite thin, and I did used to like watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. So I think that was possibly a motivation, and I think it was good for me because, again, because of the way the way that I work and when you weight train, it, it's it's very much down to you how much you put in and. When, I remember when I played football, you know, you could train really hard and work really hard and that could get lost within a team. I mean, with weightlifting, it's all down to you. I mean, you still can still train in groups, but it's down to how hard, you know, if you push every set really hard, then, then you'll see the progress. If you if you sit back and don't put the effort in, then it, then it, won't, it won't come. I wonder if there's a link there between 
having such an interest in maths and wanting things to be quantifiable and then maybe choosing a sport that was more quantifiable where the inputs and the outputs are closely linked together compared to something like football? Yeah, no, I think I think you could be right. No, I think it, I think it does make sense. I mean, it is nice to to always be able to see progression, and, and even if in very uh, small increments, it's a very defined way of determining your progress, which which you can't really do in football. How meticulous was your tracking for everything, like your training sessions and your personal bests and your competitions? Say, not that meticulous. I mean. Uh, Initially, I was, I mean, I, I think for the first probably five years ago, it was fairly uh, freestyle in the sense that I'd go to the gym. I, I'd normally plan the exercises that I was going to do, but there wouldn't necessarily be a uh, structure to the, the weights I'd pick and the amount of reps and sets I'd do. But I think I was just at that age, the fact that I was doing something and when you're under 20, if you're lifting weights and you've got reasonable form, then if you're tra- pushing yourself hard, then you should make good progress. And I think that was that was certainly true of me. And I was I was very consistent, so I'd always train four times a week. I wouldn't miss any sessions. And I did really like. I spent a lot of time looking at my form and going online. I then, when I travelled out to the US and spent a month there training with a, a club that was. Quite quite well known on the internet and I think they taught me how to really approach training and how to give everything maximum effort to really make the the best you can of it. When did you first start competing? I did my first competition when I was 19 so it was quite some time after I started training. I think initially I'd actually seen World's Strongest Man on the TV and I'd, I'd hoped I might do that but then I, I realised perhaps uh powerlifting being a more structured competition you know at the time strongman was mostly a television show it's got it's got more structure to it now but at the time it was uh powerlifting had a bit more structure there and it had a uh, some some junior competitions at the time there was uh some developments in the federation so they, they weren't always sending junior teams away to internationals but when i was 23 that uh, eventually i was able to she go away to European and World Championships for juniors. Do you remember first stepping out onto the platform in front of a crowd to lift? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I was I was nineteen, so I think I was probably overly confident at that point, and I think probably uh, the referees are maybe a little bit generous with some of my lifts, on particularly on the squat, but because I'd trained for five years, I was already quite a quite a good standard going into competition and there weren't many uh, junior athletes at that point so there wasn't too many people to compete against so I, I was coming into the sport at quite a good standard which is the opposite to what I taught people to do when when I had the club you know we try and get them to compete as early on as you can so you build a confidence on the platform whereas I I did sort of go in at quite a reasonable level straight away but I think I was probably sort of the confidence and maybe a little bit of arrogance of youth okay. <laughs> saw me through where did that come from I don't know because I would, I would I'd say I'm quite a, quite an introverted person but I think I just knew all the work that I put in and compared to the other people in the gym around me I knew that I was I was strong and stronger than sort of my peers at school and university and 
So I think I, I, I do. I should be in fairly good stead for it. And so if you were kind of advising someone on how to set up a business now in your journey so far, we've talked a lot about the thinking things through, spending time on your own and, and planning things out, the, the whole attention to detail side, which I think is really interesting. And then also the strength of the team and making sure that you that you fully trust someone before you give them things that were once under your remit. So is there anything else? Is those three things the reason you've been able to, to turn SBD into what it is today or is there something else that's that's part of of the journey i think certainly those those things have worked for me i think in some form they they would work for most people i think everyone has to to find their own way that best suits them but i think part of the the luxury i've had in that i didn't have to take on financing or, or investment early on in the company I mean, there wasn't the same pressure that somebody, some companies have to to produce short-term profits, you know, straight away. It wasn't for, you know, until recently that I started to actually to pay myself in line with, with the other employees. And so I was fortunate I didn't have to, I wasn't reliant on the company to, to produce significant profits early on. And I think it allowed me to... to Make all my decisions thinking uh, thinking long term, both in terms of the branding and in terms of uh, the growth of the company. I see a lot of companies now, particularly when it comes to marketing, they become very, very focused on on sales conversions, very focused on on sort of short term returns from marketing, rather than actually the the building of the brand itself, which is is it is very instinctive. It's not something that you you can measure very easily. It won't necessarily produce sales or results straight away, but it's uh, that's what's allowed us to grow the company to to build that brand, and, and it's a brand that people feel they can relate to and they feel happy to represent by by wearing our products. How big were you thinking at the start? I did a business plan before I started the business, although I didn't. I didn't need to do one. I did, I did one on my side, and you know, I was still projecting that the company would turn over seven figures in the three to five years. So I was still aiming for it to be a reasonable sized company, but it's continued to grow from from those uh, initial estimates. So. When it feels harder and when times are a bit tough, maybe, or you have to make difficult decisions, or things might not go exactly as you'd have planned. How do you you get through them? How do you channel? Do, is there anyone you channel, or is there anything that you think of? Like, how do you get through difficult times? There's always difficult times. I think that the types of situations you're getting are very different now than what they were five years ago. I mean, I know when I initially started the business, as much as you try to to please everyone and, and to give everyone the best experience of a company, every now and then, some some. Someone won't be happy or, you know, some people, whether or not they had a preference for another brand or they just didn't like the way we marketed something. And, and particularly with social media, they can be quite vocal about it. And that, that used to really, really hurt me in the beginning, you know, because you're, you're trying to do everything you can. When there's some people that no matter what you do, you feel like you can never please them. That was very challenging. But I think it's just the more time you spend and you just learn to – you learn to take on board what people are saying, but not necessarily fixate on it. 
I certainly had a tendency to, to look past the thousand people that were saying that were really happy with something and focused on the one that, that wasn't. Whereas I, I think now, now it's different because I've got a lot more experience of more regular situations that you end up in in the company. And I, I think I have, a, I have a good team around me that hopefully deal with most of them before they even get to me. But it's more of the bigger decisions now, decisions on, on where to take the business and, and how to handle uh, slightly bigger, sort of more operational problems and, 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 and what direction to take the business. Is, is it the right decision to, to do certain things? And you know, knowing that you've got the responsibility for... 50 plus people that work here directly, but also the, the supply chains and the retailers around the, around the world that have hired many people solely solely because of this company. So your, every decision you're taking is is going to affect them. And if you take a, a wrong decision, then it, it could negatively affect a lot of people. So it's just bearing bearing that that in mind because in the beginning it was making decisions that were only really going to affect me personally, but now it's a, I guess it's a, a different responsibility. Going back again to childhood, do you remember advice that you received, or do you, do you remember being shaped in a certain way? Because we've we've talked about at school how you were, you've said quite nerdy, and and you were always sat at the front. Did that come naturally, or was there different influences like parents and people around you shaping you in that way? I think, like I said, my dad was always for. Well, my mum and my dad were very hardworking, and my mum used to spend a, a lot of time with my sister and helping her at home because she was a little bit older than me, so helping her with her homework. So I think that she'd spend time with me, and I think I'd sort of listen in on that and try and learn. I think, if anything, I think my, my dad was probably quite happy when I, I started going to the gym and I wasn't just studying. became a bit more normal, maybe. <laughs> Bit, bit more rounded. <laughs> so the interest in studying an academic side that was all from just just you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my my parents certainly encouraged it. I mean, probably not to the extent that I did do it. I think they probably thought it was perhaps a bit too much. Probably have a tendency to focus very heavily on certain things and not be obsessive about it, but to be to be very focused. You know, like when I'm, with my training for powerlifting with SPD, but to really. Uh, focus on and try and give it everything certainly when I did start to do powerlifting and, and going to the gym I think it, it was good for me and it did make me all rounded and I think late, later my gym, my dad actually then joined me and started training so I think that that certainly helped my bond with him because not that we didn't have a good bond growing up but we certainly spent a lot more time together then so that was all nice nice to do that with him and He's, he's subsequently had uh, some involvement with the company here, so he, he quite often comes to the bigger events and he likes to sort of help out. And uh, and then also in terms of the design of some of the products. and uh, So he, he was actually the person that machined the first two prototypes of the, the Barkle Frau belt. So that, that was a great help. And I think it's, uh, it's nice for him when he comes to the events that he can see that product now he was able to sort of help me with that. And you can see the people trying it on and their, their sort of reaction to the product. So that's, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I have one myself and it's great. 
Good. (laughs) (laughs) There's someone in my gym who wears theirs upside down because they like the way it opens and closes using the other hand. And it really offends me when I see it upside down. (laughs) I don't like it. So I don't know if you can do like left-handed versions of them. (laughs) But I've told him a couple of times and he he won't change it. But then he wonders why he never appears on the SPD Instagram. And I've told him that that's why. (laughs) So I find, I just find it so interesting that like you were super hardworking and and wanting to do really well at school and just to put this into perspective I know we've talked about this before but you got 10 A stars at GCSE then five A's at A level then went to Oxford to study maths it's like the top what one percent probably even smaller than that of kids in the UK so it's a very high level of excellence and I find it so interesting that most kids' parents are pushing them to do more, whereas yours maybe thought that you were too focused on that. Like, that's that's just so interesting. Did that translate to other areas? Like, was your room always tidy? Were you always very organised? Or was it just powerlifting and maths and stuff that you were really interested in? I'm not sure about my room. I think it probably was fairly tidy. I'm not sure my mum would agree. But I think, so. if you look at my desk now, it's... Uh... It's, it's not tidy. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Aaron gives me a hard time about that. It can look a bit chaotic just because there's so many things going on. And yeah, I do have lots of lists of post-it notes stuck on my desk. So a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are parents and teachers and homeschoolers. And I think it's just such an interesting process that instilling quality and excellence into people from such a young age can can lead to a situation whereby that is like the underpinning of their professional success as well I think it's quite inspiring really to hear that that that's how you can create people who have such a commitment to excellence so last question if you could give any kind of advice to your former self what would you say as the company started to grow I think certainly I think some risks I wish I'd taken sooner I think in terms of hiring staff and and starting to pass on some of the responsibility. I think that's something that I wish I'd taken on a lot sooner. I mean, in terms of actually the initial stages of setting up the company, I think it was just, uh, while it's important to always look at the risks and to make informed decisions about the risks you're taking, I think actually taking that step and doing something is important as well because it's very easy to sit and spend a lot of time thinking and analysing but at some point you have to actually go out and do it and be prepared to, to that you are going to make some mistakes and and just make sure you you don't bury your head in the sand but you do confront them you're you're honest for yourself and something's not right and you and you do address it as quickly as possible rather than just try and push on I think that's very sound advice for anyone at any age, at any stage of of the business that they might be in. Thank you so much for joining us. Really amazing to hear from you. Thank you, Jodie. This episode was brought to you by Clever Tykes Children's Storybooks. If you want to support the podcast and help share our ethos of inspiring, enterprising behaviour, head over to clevertykes.com and order a set of the storybooks to give to a child that you know.